Turn with me, please, to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 3. We have a lot of visitors here today, and we want you to know we're really happy to have you here with us and hope that your time here has already been edifying to you as we've glorified God in song and in prayer and in remembering the death of Jesus. If you are visiting with us on Sunday mornings, uh, we've been studying through the Gospel of Mark to learn more about the Jesus that we serve. And uh, previously in the Gospel of Mark, what we have seen is the popularity of Jesus explode uh, exponentially uh, to the point where on occasion he's even actually had to go off of the mainland and onto a boat just to be able to get away from the, the thronging press of crowds trying to get their hands on him for a miracle so that he can teach them the Word of God. Well, in today's section of Mark that we're going to study, we're going to find that Jesus has attracted attention from some other people as well, but with radically different motives in mind. What we're going to see in the Gospel of Mark is the attention that Jesus attracted from his family and also from the ruling establishment of the Jews in Jerusalem, and then again from his family. In fact, in the Gospel of Mark, one of the techniques he often uses to tell us the stories of Jesus' life is what sometimes is called the sandwich technique in which he will begin a story and then he will digress from it and then he will come back to the story and conclude it. And what this does is it calls attention, of course, to what's in the middle of the sandwich here. In this case, Jesus' relationship with the scribes. But by doing this, Mark also calls attention to the similarities between the attitude of Jesus' family and the attitude, in this case, of the scribes, which we will see here as we go through Mark chapter 3. So let's begin in verse 20, which says, Then he went home. I, I presume by this it means he went back to Capernaum, which has sort of become Jesus' home base. It says, And the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And uh, I am sure that there are celebrities in our culture that experience this, and we all know about all the news stories about the paparazzi and, and the intrusive way in which they try to take pictures and get stories about celebrities. But in, in the culture of Jesus' day and time, obviously celebrity could be on a much minor scale, but in the context of Jesus' own life, he has become a celebrity to the point that he cannot eat a meal without being bothered in some way. Notice it says in verse 21 that when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. Now, let's make sure we understand just how strong the reaction of Jesus is to his growing popularity. When Mark tells us here in verse 21 that they went out to seize him, the word he uses here is the same word that later on in chapter 6 is used to describe the arrest of John the Baptist. And in fact, in the rest of the Gospel of Mark, this is the word typically used when somebody is going to be seized and taken into custody and arrested. So when the Bible says here that Jesus' family sought to seize him, what this basically means is, is that they believe he needs to be remanded into their custody and they're going to do whatever it takes in order to make sure that that happens, even if it means basically arresting him in a word that we would identify with in our culture. And the reason is given in verse 21. They say he is out of his mind. Now, I'm a single, uh, I'm an only child. 
I didn't grow up with brothers and sisters. So sometimes the dynamic of how brothers and sisters relate to each other escapes me a little bit. However, I can imagine that if my cousins heard that I was being touted as the Messiah of Israel, that they would think I was nuts. Because I'm their cousin. They grew up with me. They know what I'm like. They've known me ever since I was a little kid. Where does he come off accepting this kind of acclaim? And maybe it is that dynamic of Jesus' family knew him so well that they are absolutely flabbergasted that this one that they grew up with and knew would dare to accept the adulation as the Messiah. At least we know that that's how the people generally thought. Remember what they will often say about Jesus like in Mark 6? They say, is this not Joseph the carpenter's son? In other words, we're familiar with him. We know this man. How dare he claim to be the Messiah? What is astonishing to us at first glance is that it is Jesus' own family that comes to the conclusion that he has lost his mind, at least temporarily. And yet the Gospels are very straightforward about this. John tells us in John 7 that even Jesus' own brothers did not believe in him. Now, why is it that they want to go grab him and get him out of the public eye? Well, I suppose if you wanted to give them the benefit of the doubt... You could say that perhaps they wanted to protect Jesus, that they don't want him to be publicly humiliated. And so they're going to grab him and get him out of the public eye to protect him from the embarrassment that will inevitably come when everybody realizes he's just an ordinary guy like everybody else. Um, If you want to take a more negative and cynical view of his family, then what you could basically say is that they were deeply embarrassed that one of their own would dare to accept the acclaim of the crowds, and so to protect the family honor from shame and humiliation, they're going to go grab him and get him out of the public eye. What we do, know, do not know in this account is exactly the extent to which Mary may have shared some of these feelings. I don't think that we are required to take the view that she had as negative a view of Jesus as his brothers obviously did from what we're told in John 7. I can, though, see that perhaps even Mary was concerned about the growing popularity and the potential hazards and pitfalls that Jesus may have experienced. And so she may have shared at least some of the the same concerns to protect Jesus. But certainly we know for a fact what his brothers were thinking. And so they've gone now to seize Jesus and get him back home and get him out of the public eye. Now that brings us then to the account of the scribes, which is sandwiched in between two sections about Jesus' family. Verse 22 says, And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem. So remember that Jesus is up north in Galilee. Well, these people have now heard in Jerusalem about the work of this itinerant preacher. They perceive him as a threat, I'm sure, to their power, as a threat to the establishment. And so they go to Jesus not with the curiosity of the crowds and not with the concern of his family, but with the ignoble motives of basically defaming Jesus so that they can pull the rug out from under his popularity. And in particular, what they're going to charge Jesus with is that he is possessed by the devil himself. It says the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying he is possessed by Beelzebul. That's what the Greek says. The later versions of uh, the Latin and Syrian languages turned it into Beelzebub to make a play on the word here. That means Lord of the Flies. 
Clearly, it was a term used to mean the devil, as Mark makes clear by saying, and by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. And so basically what they're charging Jesus, Jesus with is that he is possessed by an evil spirit and that in fact what he does, he does by the power of the devil. This is a charge that also is recorded by John in a couple of places. In John 7, when Jesus basically says that he knows there's some seeking to take his life, the Jews say, you have a demon. And in John 8 and verse 48, they say, have we not rightfully said he is a Samaritan and has a demon? This is also, incidentally, what they said about John the Baptist. Remember that Jesus records for us in Matthew eleven eighteen. 18, that they said that John the Baptist doesn't eat and doesn't drink and he has a demon. So here is a common thread that when someone comes on the scene that challenges the status quo and that charges the Jewish leadership with hypocrisy and sin, their response is to attribute the work of these men to the devil himself. Just as an aside, this is one of those small details that lends credibility to the gospel account. Because if you think about it, if this story was just made up, who in their right mind in the early church would have concocted the story that Jesus cast out demons by the power of the devil? This obviously is a charge that was really made by the Jews and that was then subsequently recorded by Jesus' disciples. In fact, this very same kind of charge was made by the Jews throughout history. Later on, the Jewish Talmud records the statement that Jesus was taken and put to death because he practiced sorcery and misled the people. So this was the standard Jewish charge. If you think about it, it is a tacit admission that Jesus really performed amazing deeds like casting out demons. The accusation here is not Jesus claims to do miracles and he doesn't really do them. The charge is Jesus casts out demons, but he does it by the power of the devil. They are admitting that he cast out demons. Where they've chosen to draw the line is the origin of his authority and power to do so. Now, Jesus responds to them with a couple of basic arguments. The first argument that he makes really is an argument about the inherent contradictory notion that the devil is casting out demons by the power of the devil. Verse 23, he called them them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, the kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand up. Isn't it interesting, by the way? We just learned Jesus' house is divided against itself. Because at least some of his family think he's nuts. And Jesus says, if the devil is casting out demons by the power of the devil, that means he's working against himself. And if he's working against himself, that means his kingdom is not going to stand. Verse 26, and if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. And the obvious point here is that the devil is clearly still at work. And so what I'm doing is not by his power. Otherwise, his kingdom would have crumpled from within. And then the second argument that Jesus makes is that the fact that I'm casting out demons does not mean Satan's working against himself. That's foolish. What it does mean is that I have come onto the scene to do war with him and I am conquering him. 
Or in the language of verse 27, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. What Jesus is saying is that when I cast out demons, that is clear proof that I have already in some way limited and confined and bound the power of the devil. And now I can do whatever I want with his minions, the demons. And I have to think that at least among some of the Jews, when Jesus used this language of plundering the strong man and binding him, that they would have thought about the passage that Ben read to us from Isaiah 49, where God says, can the prey be taken from the mighty or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? The answer is, yeah. Verse 25, for thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken and the prey of the tyrant will be rescued for I will contend with those who contend with you and I will save your children. Then after Jesus responds to their charge, by a couple of logical lines of argumentation that would be inherently contradictory for Satan to work against himself. And it is evidence that I'm actually working against him and I'm overthrowing him. Jesus makes a very serious and sober warning in the next few verses. Verse 28. Truly I say to you. This is the first time of 13 times in the Gospel of Mark He will record Jesus saying, truly, I say to you. I think the King James sometimes renders this, verily, verily, I say unto you. It's actually the word in the original language that we get our word amen from. And it is absolutely unparalleled in any Jewish writing for a teacher to amen his own teaching. Nobody else ever did this. Have you ever known preachers, you ever seen preachers who amen themselves? This is one of my, if I were to list my pet peeves with preachers, one of them would be the constant use of alliteration, you know, where every point has to begin with the the same letter. But close up on the list would be preachers who would be preaching along and they get all lathered up and then they go, amen? Like, you know, they're asking for applause, basically, you know, give me an amen back, tell me I'm doing a, a good job. I've never really appreciated that about preachers. I hope no one here in the audience has ever done that. But shame on you if you did, actually. Shame on you. But when Jesus says verily or truly or amen, he is verifying. He's testifying to his own truthfulness. Nobody else ever did that because nobody else has the credibility to do so. And the fact that only Jesus does this is testimony to his unique authority that if Jesus wants to amen his own teaching, if he wants to testify to the truthfulness of his own teaching, he is the highest authority that can do that. And it's an implicit argument for his his status as the Son of God. In any event, he says, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Early on, when I first started preaching, this was a question a lot of people would ask. And I don't know why it is that later on in subsequent years it hasn't been asked that much. But I used to get questions about this passage and about this sin all the time. Often from people who were worried and wringing their hands as to whether or not they had committed this sin because of the dire warning that Jesus gives here that it is an eternal sin, that it cannot be forgiven. 
And yet, if you look at this text, Jesus very plainly explains to us, and the context confirms to us, what blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is when you attribute the work of the Holy Spirit to the devil. It's what he says in the very next verse, verse 34, they had said he has an unclean spirit. And the reason it is unpardonable is because when a person has reached the point of dishonesty, when they know Jesus is doing miracles, and they know it doesn't make any sense to say he's casting out demons by the power of the devil, but the only recourse they have, if they're not going to accept that he is the Son of God, is to say, well, the devil's doing that. That person has reached such a state of stubbornness and dishonesty that they are not going to repent and therefore they will not be forgiven. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is when a person is so desperate to reject the obvious truth about who Jesus is that they will even take the clear testimony of the Holy Spirit and say, well, that's just the devil. And of course a person in that circumstance is not going to be forgiven. In fact, if you've ever worried, have you committed the sin of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, the very fact you're worried about it is the sure sign you haven't done it. Because a person who has committed this sin could care less about what the testimony of God really means. Well, after this exchange with the scribes, we return again to Jesus and his family. And as I said to you, one of the reasons Mark uses this technique of sandwiching accounts is to draw attention to what's in the middle, but it's also to draw attention to how similar what's inside is to what's outside. The similarity is unmistakable. If you look in verse 21, it says of his family, they were saying he's out of his mind. And in verse 22, the scribes were saying he's possessed by Beelzebub. There's very strong similarity here. The only difference is his family stops short of saying he does what he does by the devil. They just say he's a lunatic. But now when we come to Mark chapter 3 verse 31 it says, And his mother and his brothers came and standing outside they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And remember they're seeking him to basically arrest him. Verse 33, he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers. And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. And in a very radical way, Jesus redefines who his family really is. Now, from this account that we've, we've looked at this morning, there are some lessons that I think are so important for us to really grab hold of as those who want to please God and serve Him. And the first of these lessons that I really want to emphasize to us, having read from Mark 3 this morning, is that really the three options that we have with regard to who Jesus is are really reflected here. And that is, either Jesus is out of his mind. I mean, who goes around and claims to be the Son of God if they're not? Either he's out of his mind, 
which is what his family thought. Or he is a sinister liar who does what he does by evil powers, which is what the Jewish leaders thought. Or he is who he says he was, and he is the Lord. And the reason I say this is because today especially, there are so many people who want to be spiritual and have some sense of religion in their lives, but they do not want to accept biblical orthodoxy. And so what they've chosen to do is basically believe that there was a man named Jesus who lived, and he was a good person, he was a social reformer, he was a compassionate teacher, but then people just kind of went nuts and, uh, and, and kind of twisted his message around. But really he was basically a good person. He wasn't the only one who could take us to heaven. But he was a person who taught us something about God. And years ago, it was C.S. Lewis who absolutely peeled the bark off of that kind of thinking when he wrote this in Mere Christianity. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or he would be the devil of hell. You must take your choice. Either this was and is the Son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. I would at least give the Jewish leaders this much credit. If you're not going to believe he's the Lord and if you're not going to believe he's a lunatic, they at least realize that's the only other option left to them is to say he does what he does by the power of the devil. And so every one of us here this morning is confronted with a tough choice to make. We cannot simply dismiss Jesus with a pat on the head and say, boy, you were a great guy. You've got a choice to make about who he is. That's the first lesson I want us to learn this morning. The second lesson I want us to learn this morning is, based on the plain statement of Jesus in verse 28, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. How odd is it that whenever people want to talk about this verse, they only focus on the sin of the Holy Spirit, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, and they worry about whether they've committed it, and don't even take a moment to consider the plain teaching of Jesus here that all sins that we have committed may be forgiven. This should not be just simply a terrifying scripture to us. This should be one of the most encouraging and heartening verses in all of the Bible. Because what it is teaching is that unless you are the kind of person of such unrepentant stubbornness that you're going to take everything God does and say the devil's doing it, unless you're that person, then you have the hope through the grace of God and through the death of Jesus that you can be forgiven. We ought to cling to this verse. As one of the greatest promises that God has ever given to us. In fact, think about what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Timothy 1. Who, by the way, was a man who committed the sin of blasphemy against Jesus when he was an unbeliever. And he says in 1 Timothy 1, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace 
of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Someone who is dishonest and someone who is blinded They're the people that Jesus are describing as those who blaspheme the Holy Spirit. But someone like Paul who acted ignorantly can be taught and can be forgiven. And that's the Apostle Paul who's talking here. The man who went and arrested Christians and who cast a vote to put them to death. The man who says that he ravaged the church like a a wild animal would ravage a carcass. Like an enemy army would invade and plunder a city. That's what he says that he did to the church. But he was forgiven. The chiefest of sinners was forgiven because of the overflowing grace of God. And so let's take some encouragement from what Jesus says here. That all sins will be forgiven the children of man. And know that by the power of the blood of Jesus Christ, every one of us here can be forgiven this morning. If we will understand who he is and not be blinded to who he is. But understand who he is and respond to him. Obviously, I couldn't leave this scripture this morning without looking at what Jesus says about how he redefines the family. And that's the third key lesson I think we should learn from this text. Jesus explains to us that your real family is not defined by DNA. It's not defined by a family tree. It is defined by a relationship with him. And that our real family is based in, it is rooted in, it is grounded in the common fellowship we have with Jesus Christ himself. Now on the one level, this is a tremendous challenge to the way we often think. My family comes from a part of the world over in eastern Kentucky in which family was everything. In which the blood tie of a family was so strong that at the drop of a hat, if you had to go shoot another family that was causing your family trouble, that's just what was expected you would do. And in the part of the world where Jesus grew up, family ties were everything. Remember how often we find genealogies in the Old Testament and sometimes in the New Testament. That just emphasizes to us how central to the core of your identity your family was. Maybe in our day and time we've lost a little bit of the impact of what Jesus says because so many families are fragmented. But in Jesus' day that was rare and your family was everything. And for him to stand up while his own flesh and blood are outside the house and say, I'll tell you who my real family is. It's these people sitting here was a radical and frankly insulting thing for him to say in his day and time. And yet Jesus challenged his disciples to realize in Matthew 10 that if you're going to follow me, that means that your loyalty is to me before anyone or anything else. In Matthew chapter 10, he says in verse 34, Do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace but a sword, for I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. One of the commentaries I read said, you know, this passage probably is not a great text to preach on Mother's Day. I suppose that's probably right in a sense. 
And if you think about it here in America, we have allegiances. In fact, we sometimes talk about something being as American as motherhood and apple pie. So here I'm preaching on a text right, not, after, not too long after Mother's Day and on Memorial Day weekend, which is challenging us to realize that our greatest allegiance and loyalty is not to our immediate family. It is not to our extended family. It is not to our country. It is to Jesus Christ. And if we don't put him before every other relationship we have, if I don't see myself as a Christian before I am a Scot, or a Christian before I am a Tennessean, or a Christian before I'm an American, I'm not worthy to be his disciple. Which, by the way, does not make me an inferior son. It makes me a better son, and a better citizen, and a better patriot to love Jesus first. Because sometimes my family, or my friends, or my country doesn't always deserve the love and respect that the Bible says I'm to give them. But because I love Jesus before anyone else, I'll do what he says, even if it means loving people who don't always deserve it. But we need to understand that as Christians, we must be able to say, as much as I love my family, as much as I love my friends, as much as I love my state or my country, I have to love Jesus first. And if I don't love him before anyone or anything else, I can't be his disciple. So it is a tremendous challenge in Mark 3 when Jesus says, I'll tell you who my family really is. Because he's telling us who our family is as well. But there is also a tremendous blessing in what Jesus says here. And that is, even though I might not have a wonderful pedigree in my family line, and even though I might not have many people in my family who are Christians, and even though I might have people in my family who are scoundrels, it doesn't matter because there is a tie thicker than blood kinship, and that is the tie created by Jesus' blood that he shed on the cross such that he creates a family of people who, whatever their physical lineage, are spiritually bound to him. And we can be his mother and his brother and his sister because of a spiritual relationship we have based on obedience to the word of God. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Can you imagine that the Lord of glory, the Messiah, Jesus Christ himself, is willing to count us as members of his family? If we will honor his father the same way that he honors him. That is amazing to me. As Hebrews chapter 2 says, he is not ashamed to be called our brother. If we will serve his father. And in fact, the encouragement to me comes so much later on in Mark chapter 10. After the story of what we sometimes call the rich young ruler. And when Jesus challenged him to sell his possessions and give to the poor and he went away sorrowfully. And Peter says to Jesus in verse 28 of Mark 10, We've left everything and followed you. Jesus says this, Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. When I made the decision to follow Jesus and love him more than anyone else, 
I'll be frank with you, it was not a decision that was hard from a family standpoint. Because I came from a family where at least my grandparents were, were Christians when I was younger. My mom came back to the Lord when I was a little bit older, but I had support and encouragement. But that's pretty much the extent of it. But when I became a follower of Jesus and made the decision to love Him above and beyond everyone else, a wonderful thing happened. I suddenly had an entire network of family members all over the globe who are my brothers and sisters and my mothers and fathers, people who would give me anything that I needed. If I needed a place to stay, they would give me room. If I needed something to eat, they would give me something to eat. If I needed encouragement, they would give me encouragement. And I have a family now, and you have a family now, through Jesus Christ, that far exceeds and extends any blessings we could have had from our physical families. Because we've made a decision to follow Him. And while we should never forget that our ultimate hope and our ultimate blessing is what Jesus talked about, in the age to come, eternal life, at the same time, we must not neglect the very real and present blessings we have now. Because we have a family through Jesus Christ. And I know that there are some of you who do not have a lot of people in your family who are Christians. And some of you come from environments in which your family is not even whole. And I want you to know that you need to embrace the promise that Jesus gives you here. That you can be in His family. And while you can't choose who your parents are and you can't choose who your brothers and sisters are physically... By making the choice to follow Jesus, you are choosing to be a part of and embraced by a family that is greater than you can even possibly imagine right now. One of my favorite passages is in Psalm 27 and verse 10 where the psalmist says, Even if my mother and father forsake me, the Lord will take me in. And who better to give us that promise than Jesus, who at least on this occasion was forsaken by his brothers. But who can promise us all that he will take us in to be in his family. Let's take our songbooks out, please, and turn to the invitation number that Austin has selected for us this morning. I hope this morning to have presented all of us with the same balanced sense of challenge and hopefulness that Jesus presents to us in this text. The challenge to really face up to who he is, first of all. That's the first thing. The challenge to realize that our attitude toward him could be an attitude of such blindness and dishonesty we have blasphemed the Holy Spirit and are outside the scope of forgiveness in that state of, of spiritual rebellion. But the same hope and promise that all sins may be forgiven if we will come to the one who can forgive us. And I hope this morning to have challenged us all with the sober reality that our first allegiance must be to the Lord above all else. But at the same time with the hopeful promise that in Christ we have a relationship that is immeasurably beautiful. And if you need to make the decision this morning to become a Christian, the very serious decision to count everything else but loss in order for the, the pleasure of knowing him. We want to help you this morning to put your faith and trust in Jesus, to make a decision to turn from your sins, to accept his lordship, and to be baptized. If you're a child of God, I hope that you'll be encouraged this morning to be a part of the family of God.
to rejoice in the blessings you have. If we can help you in any way, let us know as we stand and sing together.